This is John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these known that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated. Thank you, Brett. Good morning, Arcadia. Great to see you all. Uh, My name is Frank. If you're new here, we're glad that you are here. I'm one of the four pastors here, and um, I get to preach this morning on John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, if you'll turn there. But before we get there, I have like five really fast other comments or announcements before we get into that. So uh, the first one is that last song we did in this room was written by none other than our very own Caleb Wiseman, if you can believe that. Yeah, there he is, yeah. He he wouldn't say it, but I will. So um, it's part of the it's part of the Redemption Arcadia album that's going to be coming out. No, it's not. Okay, he's keeping that one for himself. But he also helped write uh, "Clear the Room." You know that song, "Clear the Room." So he's got this whole room motif going on. It's going to be like a room album that's going to come out. Anyway, so Caleb, that's good stuff. Thank you. We appreciate that. Um, second of all, yes, I uh, for the second time in two and a half weeks, I cut my chin shaving. So same place. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in negotiation right now with my razor. It's like a hostage situation. I'm very unhappy with my razor right now. Uh, I, I was able to shave for, for essentially 45 years without ever cutting my face, and now twice in the last, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Pray for me. Uh, so a couple of other things. On February 2nd, Wednesday, February 2nd, I'm going to start something new. Um, It's going to be a Wednesday night Bible study in this room. We're going to be here every Wednesday just studying the Bible. It'll be from 7 to 745. The thing is going to be completely stripped down. I wanted to do something that didn't tax any of the other staff. We are going to record it. We've bought something called a Zoom mic, which Caleb still hasn't trained me on how to use, but we're going to record it and be able to put it on the website. But We'll be in, I'll be in here every Wednesday night just going through different Bible studies. I'm going to start in with Matthew 10, probably take about four weeks to go through that, and then I'm going to move into 1 Corinthians. It'll be every Wednesday night. We're just going to do it every Wednesday night. And when I'm out of town, one of the other pastors will be here to do it. But uh, no child care, nothing like that. We're not worried about uh, a big attendance or anything. It just if you're not doing anything on Wednesday night from 7 to 7.45, you can come in and have a conversation about Scripture. Uh, so... Um, that's one thing that starts a week from this Wednesday. Number two, next Sunday are baptisms. So if you uh, want to just talk about getting baptized, you don't have to commit. But if you just want to talk about it and then maybe commit after the conversation, would you please contact me through the email uh, that is up there? That's frankswitzer at redemptionaz.com. And we can talk about that. And then uh, the last thing, this is really good news. 
Uh, I don't have the final uh, financial picture for 2021. I will have that next Sunday, so the 30th. I'm going to have all those figures, and we'll be able to present that, talk about the budget for 2022 and everything. The budget is put to bed, but we wanted to talk about that in relationship to the results from 2021. But I did get the results from the Advent offering that we gave, and it was $30,000. And so we have already cut checks for $10,000 to each of those ministry partners, alongside Prison Ministries, uh, Hope Women's Center here in Phoenix, and Immigration Hope. And so that has been a tremendous blessing to those three, um, those three ministries, and we're very grateful for your generosity for that Advent offering. That's a big deal to them, and they really appreciate it, and they send their thanks. So, yeah, cool. So let me pray, and then we'll look at this last part of this prayer from John 17. Father God, we're grateful for, for everything that you do for us, for all that you're doing in this faith community. God, we give you the glory. We thank you for equipping us, for empowering us, for encouraging us for giving us hope and for comforting us when we need that as well. And now as we look at your word and we seek the comfort that we can gain from your word and we seek to know your son Jesus because of the gospel, we just pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds, uh, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and illuminate us, that you'd move me out of the way so that only you are speaking here today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working through the Gospel of John, and for the last three weeks, we've had like this little mini-series in John chapter 17. This is the prayer that Jesus prays right before he's arrested, and he, and he ends up going to the cross. And we call this the real Lord's Prayer. It's also known as the high priestly prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is actually telling the disciples, this is how uh, you should pray. And so... We're looking at what I would call the real Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, what we've looked at so far is verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself and he prays for his Father. And then in verses 6 through 19, he prayed for what we call his immediate disciples. In other words, those disciples that were with him in that moment. And they got to hear that prayer as he prayed for them. And that was really the bulk of the prayer. And we found that Probably the most important verse of that prayer, if you wanted to rank verses, I don't know if that's a good idea, but if you wanted to rank verses, is that verse where he says to his father, he says, I pray that you don't take my disciples out of this world, but that you walk with them through this world. In other words, uh, God's MO is not to take us out of difficult situations, but to walk with us through them so that we might learn, so that we might understand contentment and perseverance and patience and things like that. And then today we look at verses 20 through 26 where he actually prays for us. He prays for all of those disciples who are going to come after his uh, first 12 disciples. I spent a lot of time these last, I don't know, couple of months simply praying about and, co and contemplating this chapter of scripture that we're now in our third week. And, and I've just been noodling on this prayer that Jesus prays for himself and for his father and for his disciples and now for the followers uh, of him who would come after his original disciples. And, and he prays this prayer of intercession for us. I want to make sure we understand the timing and the concept. He prays this prayer of intercession for us just a couple hours before he's going to be marched 
to the cross. Just a few hours before he's going to be arrested unfairly, tried and convicted irrationally, and executed unjustly. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, he's willing to go to the cross because he knows that it's going to complete his mission and purpose. When he was born, that's the purpose that he was born for. He was going to live his life. He was going to have his three years of ministry and teaching. He was going to point people to who God is. And then he was going to go to the cross as an atonement for our sins. He went there so that you and I could be saved, delivered, and redeemed from our sin and be reconciled. In other words, put into right relationship with God. That's why he does this. It's called, here's the big $1.30 term, sacrificial substitutionary atonement. So I want to define that term kind of working backwards. What does atonement mean? Atonement means paying for the debt that we owe for sin. He paid for the debt that we owe for sin. Now you might say, but wait a minute. I want to ask a question. Jesus never sinned, so why did he atone? Well, that's the substitutionary part. So we understand atonement, but this is the substitutionary part. Because we are sinners, because we've broken our relationship with God through our sin, we can never fully atone for our own sin. Now, you and I can do little moral things that kind of make us feel virtuous, make us feel better about ourselves. But you and I, in and of ourselves, we are not thoroughly able to bridge the holiness gap that we have with God. We need an outside intervention by God. Now, even though we can't atone for our own sin in a way that fully reconciles us to God, we are somehow however, worthy of God's love, apparently, because he did this for us. He sent his son for us. So apparently we are actually worthy of God's love for us. But in and of, in and of ourselves, because of our sin nature, we're not worthy enough to atone for our sins in a way that eternally reconciles us to God. We need a supernatural intervention by the one who is worthy, and that would be Jesus. God's son, the Messiah. And he is worthy because he's perfect and holy. He's God come in the flesh. And he's the only one who ever actually kept the law of God. So he came to do this for us. He lived the perfect life. So that's the substitutionary part. He's our substitute. But still, even though we're told in the book of Hebrews that it was... Because of the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross, it doesn't mean that Jesus liked it. We know in the other Gospels that he prayed and, 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 he, and he asked that God would remove this cup from him. Essentially, as, as our founding pastor Tom Schrader says, Jesus prayed, if there's a plan B to this, could we look at plan B? I'm not happy with plan A. But nevertheless, not my will, Father, your will be done. This substitutionary atonement was not pleasant. It wasn't fun or happy. In fact, it cost him a lot. And we're going to be looking at this over the next few weeks. He was beaten. He was mocked. He suffered. He was humiliated. He was shamed. And his mother had to watch it all. Mary had to watch it all. And so this is actually the sacrificial part. 
This was the greatest sacrifice, the most important sacrifice, the effective sacrifice, the most complete sacrifice ever made. And he did it for us. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus, you've never asked him to be your savior, invited him into your heart, into your life, there is no time like the present. And I would encourage you that after I stop yakking, which will be in, I don't know, maybe 25 minutes, that you find a pastor, an elder, or a deacon to talk to. Ask questions. We encourage you to do that. And so just a few hours before this sacrificial substitutionary atonement is to take place for us, Jesus prays for us. It boggles my mind. But, but there is a sense, in a, there is a sense, there's a shadow, an inkling that I have about this. That there's a small sense of perhaps understanding that I think I get about, about this. Uh, back in April, some of you will recall, uh, our family went through a harrowing time with the birth of our first grandchild, Jamie. There were first a few hours of desperate anxiety as we wondered whether or not Jamie would live. And then after that, there was nearly a week of horrific anticipation as we waited to see, uh, waited to find out if he'd make it through the treatments, these almost experimental treatments that they had for him to see if he'd first of all live, and if he did live, how much brain damage he was going to have to live with. And as we went through that, I, I watched from a distance. Uh, Jackie was there the whole time. I was in Phoenix, but I watched my daughter suffer tremendous agony during all of that. And while I prayed for Jamie's recovery, which, by the way, God miraculously gave. It's one of the great stories of our lives. It's a God story. But while I prayed for that, I also prayed that God would somehow let me take Darby's place, that I could switch places with her because watching her go through that pain was too much. I remember when our oldest daughter, Shelby, had to go through painful and frightening hand surgery her freshman year in high school, and all the painful recovery that uh, came after that, a long recovery to get her back on track. And I remember praying and asking God, if there, isn't there some way that I could go through that for her instead of her? A lot of tears shed over that as well. It's also the story I heard from my Grandfather, he told me this story with tears in his eyes years and years ago about my father, his son, when he left home in May of 1942 to become a gunnery officer on the USS Farragut during World War II, and he fought for three years in the South Pacific, and my grandfather said he would have given anything to have gone in place of his son into war. And then more recently, Jackie, my wife, had five hours of painful oral surgery, five hours under anesthesia, and then recovery. And, and as I was driving her to the center for this work, I told her that I wished it was me and not her. She agreed with that, by the way. <laughs> anyway, you get the point. Here is Jesus about to experience the single most horrific and shameful way to die because of us, and for us, and yet he's praying for us. He's thinking about us. It's amazing to me. You know, I pray for my children all the time, every day. And I pray for my grandchild, Jamie. But it's kind of weird. As I contemplated this prayer, 
I realize I've never prayed for anybody past Jamie. I have, I have yet to pray for his friends, his future spouse if he's going to have one, his future children, my future grandchildren if he has any. And yet here's Jesus praying for me more than 2,000 years ago. And he's praying for you. And he's doing so in what was certainly the most profound moment of distress and agony in anybody's life. It's remarkable and humbling. And make no mistake, Jesus met the single greatest and most essential need that all of us have by going to the cross. Whatever we think we need, there is no greater need that we have than Jesus going to the cross and atoning for our sins on our behalf. And I also think about this. I think about his disciples. Uh, Jesus' prayer could have been filled with a, a bit of despair and annoyance because, you know, his disciples had been less than stellar at times. If you read through the Gospels, you know the stories. And they also didn't like how he viewed his own Messiahship. Now, he's God. He's in charge. And yet they kept trying to explain to him what his mission and purpose was. Kind of similar to us, I think, sometimes. Because they wanted him to be the type of king who was going to beat back and ultimately humiliate the Romans. They were tired of living under the yoke of the Roman government. They didn't want a savior who was telling them, look, you even got to love your enemies, and if a Roman soldier asks you to go one mile, you go two with him. They didn't like that part. We're kind of in that same boat, too. We, we doubt, we question as if we have a better way than God, as if we have more wisdom of, than God, as if our perspective is way more informed than God. We also, just like the disciples, we want a Messiah and a Savior on our own terms. We want him to fix our circumstances and fix other people and just leave us the heck alone, right? We want him to serve our desires, our whims, and our foolishness rather than us having to humbly submit ourselves to him. And yet he prays this, power, this prayer of power and love and strength for us. He prays for his silly disciples in the moment and for his silly disciples today. It is humbling. And this prayer should also remind us that that though his immediate disciples, those who were there with him, they had this sort of advantage of being with Jesus as he walked this earth, Jesus does not see a distinction in any way between them and us. He treats us the same. That's also humbling and encouraging. But there is also one other thing that Jesus prayed about here in these last seven verses of this chapter. I want to read it again, and I think you'll see it. We started talking about it even last week. So let me reread it. He says, very good transition sentence by Jesus, by the way, if you're thinking about transition sentences. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's a good segue. So now he's praying for us, that they may all be one, us, one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may 
be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So there's one other thing, but before we discuss that final thing that uh, Jesus prayed for, notice uh, Jesus apparently has great optimism for these disciples that were with him because he knows that there are going to be disciples as a result of their ministry. He knows that there are going to be disciples that come after them. There's going to be this ongoing church for centuries and centuries. And his optimism is in spite of their silliness and folliness, fo- folly, folliness, that's a great new word that I just invented, silliness and folly as disciples. And it reminds us of two important things. Number one, Jesus is looking for faith and willingness, not results. He's looking for faith and willingness and obedience and not results. He wants us to be occupied by the process and the call that he gives us and allow him to be the one that mediates the results. And then second of all, just remember, he is the master of the results. And I found that very freeing and empowering to be able to live a life under his sovereignty that way. And then his optimism is also rooted in two other things. First of all, although he's going to be crucified, he also knows the resurrection is coming, and the resurrection will change everything. Think about just Peter. Peter before the resurrection and Peter after the resurrection. Two completely different people. And then second, in addition to the resurrection, he also knows the Holy Spirit is going to come in order to fill, strengthen, and guide those disciples and then continue to fill, strengthen, and guide us as well. So now here's that other thing, that last thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer. He prays for unity. We started talking about this last week. And no, we're not done talking about it. There's still more to discuss about this unity. Jesus prays that us, we... This faith community here today and every other faith community that's gathering today across the nation, across the world, across the city, wherever it is, he prays that we would be one just as the Trinity is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we call that oneness, unity, oneness. And so here you go. If Jesus prays for unity and this call to oneness, And it's in the Bible. Shouldn't we take it seriously? Uh, That's a rhetorical question, by the way. You don't have to answer that. Again, listen to Paul in in Philippians 1.27 through 2.5 and see if this doesn't sound just a bit similar to what Jesus is praying here. We read a bit of this last week. We're going to read more of it this week. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striding side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this unity, this oneness, starts with Christ and his mind, his perspective, and how he sees things, not with us and how we see things. We're going to see things differently, and that's okay, but ultimately we need to be united not uniformed, but united in the mind of Christ. And then that just works backwards again. Yes, it's okay for us to look at our own interest. He's not saying just give up on your interest. He's saying, but also as you look to your own interests and care for your own interests, you also have to look at the interest of others. And here you go. Here's the key. When your interests are intertwined with somebody else's interests, you need to make sure that you look at theirs first. That's called humility. That's called submission. That's empathy. That's compassion. That's all those things that we submit ourselves to in the gospel. It's not that we're unconcerned about our, our interests, but we need to make sure that our concern is married to concern for other people's interests. And then he says in submission and in humility, because of all these one things, the one mind, the one, all of those one things, he says, because of that, we're able to consider others as more significant or more important than we are. I'll just tell you from my own experience, as I began to wrap my head around this years ago, I used to be that annoying person in a room who always had to be the first one to speak, the loudest one to speak, and the one who was going to speak the longest. And I've learned over time that that's not a gospel-centered way to behave. And I've learned to go in and, and you know, they say, um, uh, keep your mouth shut. I'm paraphrasing here. Keep your mouth shut. And it's okay if everybody else thinks you're a fool, rather than opening your mouth and removing all doubt about you being a fool. Okay? It's not that I don't speak. But, but there's a sense in which you need to be able to submit yourself to others and hear others and understand their perspective as, as well. And then all of us point to Christ and say, all right, let's have the mind of Christ in this. Let's take every thought captive to him. Let's understand how he might look at this. So here are a few observations about the biblical notion of unity. One, unity tends to multiply the effectiveness of the proclamation of the gospel. That's in that prayer, verses 20 through 26, that Jesus prayed. He said, make them one so that the world can see that I'm real. So unity tends to multiply the effectiveness of the proclamation of the gospel. How often have you heard about people outside of the church mocking the church because we're all fighting with each other over really silly things most of the time? Second of all, there's a type of robust immunity that can be born of hardship, persecution, and shared suffering. I, I would argue that this is why the church is actually more effective when the church is actually being oppressed, when the church is 
under tension, when the church isn't in the majority, when the church is in exile and the church is a remnant, the church is actually more effective. Because we're not all trying to figure out how our little kingdoms inside the church are going to work. Suddenly we realize there's only one kingdom. And it's under attack. And we need to be together on this. And third, consider the strength of unity that forms when people take up others' crosses with no complaint or hesitation. Tyler James, our family pastor, just shared with us at at the last elder meeting how he's been, not to pat ourselves on the back, but he's been so encouraged watching this faith community, the way y'all are serving each other and going above and beyond. Little things that never seem to get noticed. Little things that you're doing above and beyond without any idea that that you're going to get anything back for it. And he just told God's story after God's story after God's story. There is a unity that happens when we pick up each other's crosses. And finally, please, please understand that sins and Satan's profound effect is to fragment that which is one. That's the idea. Going all the way back to Genesis, when when the adversary came to Eve and to Adam and got them to rebel against God, what what happened? Everything got fragmented. Uh, Adam and Eve, as individuals, were fragmented and broken within themselves. They were broken and fragmented apart from God. They were broken and fragmented apart from themselves. And they were broken and fragmented apart from the creation. They were all one. They were whole. Here's the, the science term. They had integrity. Integrity, in a scientific Uh, vernacular means wholeness. It means unfragmented. The minute sin enters the picture, we have fragmentation. We have have our wholeness being blown apart. And that happens to us as individuals. It happens to us in faith communities. And it happens to us as one with God. You and I, deep in our souls, we pine for, we long for integrity wholeness and completeness and Satan's desire, sin's desire and effect is to just bust that up. And Jesus came to save us from that. That's why he came. So in verse 23b, the last half of 23, Jesus says, I want them to be perfected into one. That's the goal and that's the clear call that God has for us. But it only happens as we diligently and in humility pursue Christ together and make him the focus. The humility we we need leads us to trust and to forgive and to yield to one another. And just stop and think about some of the things that divide us. Is not God bigger than these things that divide us? Are we not wasting time making much of these things that God would regard at best as secondary? Things like politics and mode of baptism and style of music and race and social media. Merrill Tenney, the New Testament scholar, writes this. This stings a little bit, and it probably should, but he writes this. If we were to pause and truly reflect on the church's record of disunity, we can easily see how far short we have fallen of what Jesus in his grace and love calls us to. Now, Tenney's observation here reminds us that there are also two divine elements found in this passage that are essential for oneness. 
The first one is the word of God. We see that in verses 21 and 22. The word, the word is really important. For you. When, when I'm, even when I'm feeling fragmented from Jackie, if I go and read scripture, it somehow just binds me back to her. That's just the effect that God's word has on me. And it's true in my other relationships as well. Because God's word has a way of correcting me. And just so you know, I need a lot of correction. And God's word has a way to be able to do that. And it corrects me towards the other. It corrects me toward God as well. And so that word directs us to God's will and wisdom and truth, his grace, his correction, and his forgiveness. We should read it and study it and embrace it, but we should also remember that Jesus is the word, the logos, the center of the universe, as John describes in John chapter 1. He's the message, the truth, everything. He's not only the author of the word, but he is the word. And then second, that other element is in verse 26. It's love. It's love. And again, it's not, as Martin Luther King says, that emotional bosh kind of love, that, that silly love that's only driven by our preferences and our emotions. This is a love that goes deep, a love that has an understanding of knowledge and wisdom and discernment that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 1. And it's, and it's a love that drives us toward what people call the one another's of Scripture. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. But here's something else. And we talk about this all the time, but it seldom seems to get through, even though it's true. The fact that we do have disagreements about the things of this world should help us realize that the call to unity is not a call to uniformity. It's not. It's not. What unifies us, or should unify us, is far more important, powerful, and essential than anything in this world that we all get so worked up about. And that would be Jesus. We need to, as my friend Tim Mon says, be small. Seek to be small. That's John chapter 3, where John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's, that pretty much goes against the grain of what culture calls us to. Culture's calling us to try to be big. Jesus says, think about being small. Seek to be small. And we need to love one another and forgive one another and have compassion and empathy for one another and pray for one another. And always, always, always let the gospel and the spirit reign in our lives. Finally, let's think about this. The prayer that Jesus prays here and the words that Paul writes in his New Testament letters do not come from some, some philosophical speculation or ethereal conjecture. This prayer and these words come from a personal, intimate knowledge of what is true and loving and filled with grace. You know, you and I can be academically strong in the gospel, but practically and experientially weak. That's Pastor Trey's saying, that we are formed way more by practice than we are by understanding. 
We are formed way more by our habits and our liturgies throughout the week than we are by just knowing something. We need to know, but then we need to practice it. It's true. Well, Jesus and Paul had both, and we should pray that we would also have both. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it is our prayer that we would be one as you are one with your Son and with your Spirit. God, not that we would eliminate distinctions, not that we would eliminate any sort of diversity that we have, but that ultimately we would submit all of that to you, that we would find our identity first in you and in your Son, and that we would be filled with your Spirit so that your Spirit would illuminate and reign in who we are. Help us to do that. Give us the courage to be able to do that. God, and I just thank you for this faith community here. What a blessing it is to be a part of redemption. In, in general, Redemption Arizona, and also just to be a part of Redemption Arcadia, what a blessing it is. I just pray that we would be a congregation that would always seek to glorify you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our time of reflection and response. We're going to sing a couple more songs as we, as we do that. Uh, we're going to take communion as well. If our communion servers would uh, please come forward. We're in that last night of Jesus' life where he changes that Passover meal. And at one point he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's the wafer that you get in the communion kits. His body went to the cross and was broken there for us. And then at the end of the meal, he takes the cup with the wine in it. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He calls us to do this in remembrance of him. And so that's what, when you turn over that little communion kit, that's what that juice is in there. It's the body and blood of Jesus. And we come and we, we take that to proclaim his death until he comes again, but we also come confessing that we need him and celebrating that we have him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a, this is a moment that we actually all look forward to every week. We don't do this as routine, but we do it because we're called to and we do it with a, we should do it with a sober mind, with great purpose and great prayer as we come, but also with an edge of celebration. For we are loved by the creator God of this universe. And he demonstrates that love through what his son has done for us. So let's do that now.
Church, let me just remind you, you have elders who are praying for you, pastors and deacons who are praying for you, members of the church who are praying for you. You are so loved. Remember that. As we go, my charge to you would just be to live out what we just sang, that your life this week would bring praise to the Father and praise to the Son and praise to the Spirit in his name and in his grace. Go in peace. Live all of life. All for Jesus. We'll see you next week.